Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that every name that we sang, every truth that was spoken, it's true about you. It's true about our Savior. There's a reason Christmas so captures our world, because there's never been anybody like Jesus. There's never been a God that would love us so much he'd send his son. And so, Lord, in this Christmas season, I pray for each of us here. I pray for those who, uh, maybe they're struggling right now. Maybe it's a hard season. Those that are grieving. Those that are battling illness. Lord, those that are financially in a really hard place. Lord, I pray that they would recognize that you are God who is with us. You are God who's for us. Lord, I pray for all of us who maybe Christmas is uh, something we've celebrated our whole lives. And at times we forget how incredible the story is and who Jesus is. I pray you just stir us up in a new way. Open our eyes in a fresh way. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it is hard to believe that uh, we're just a couple of weeks away. Yeah. Uh, some of you are excited. Some of you panicked a little bit at that moment. But a couple of weeks from now, and that weekend's going to be totally different. We don't have our normal services. We won't have Saturday night service. We won't have Sunday morning services. We'll start on Sunday afternoon. Two services on Sunday afternoon, two services on Monday afternoon, and then three services on Christmas Eve, Tuesday. And so I really want you to think about, think about when you'll come, think about when you'll celebrate with your family. But specifically, if you're part of the Venture family, think about when you're going to go on mission with us. Uh, never forget, the whole Christmas story is a missionary story. That God loved us enough, he came here. He sacrificed he was willing to do whatever it took to reach this planet. And as a church, we want to be the same because it's one of the few times of year that you can invite friends. You can invite people that are new to the area. You can invite people. I really would encourage you, if you know someone who's moved here from another country, it's one of the best ways to even just as a cultural celebration to say, you ought to come experience Christmas. We will sing carols. We're going to have a candlelight service. You can figure out what Christmas is all about by coming with you at a service. And so right now, I want you to be thinking about what are the services you're going to serve so that we can create the kind of environment. Who are you inviting? Make sure you get the gift bags. Make sure you get the cards. God has given us an opportunity right now with our culture that people are interested in Christmas. Let's go on mission with him as we share this incredible story together. You know, we, we've been looking at Christmas a little bit different perspective. Instead of just looking back 2,000 years ago, we actually have gone back 2,700 years ago to these incredible prophecies that point to Jesus. In fact, the one we're looking at today, I think, is one of the greatest birth announcements ever. No one has ever sent out a birth announcement like this one, especially when you think it was sent out 725 years in advance. As Isaiah is pointing to a child that would be born. We talked about last week, Emmanuel, this God with us, and it pointed to a child in his time, but he began pointing to a, a greater child that would be born. And, and then today, he expands on that. 
As he's describing to a people that are going through a hard time there, a time of gloom, he says, but there is hope. Because this child that's coming, he's going to be like none that's ever been on this planet. It's interesting, as he describes it and and all the glory around it and who we know Jesus is, how many people actually missed it, though, because they didn't expect him to come in such a humble way. They didn't expect him in those circumstances. About 10 years ago, the Washington Post did a study on people's perception. They hired the world-famous violinist, Joshua Bell, young man known around the world, does concerts. In fact, two nights before the study, he had been doing a concert at the Boston Symphony Hall. Cheapest ticket was $100. They took him, though, to the the Washington Metro, the subway station, and wearing blue jeans and a T-shirt and a baseball hat, he set up shop right next to a trash can, pulled out his violin, and began playing the same songs he had played at the concert. Mozart and Bach. If people had paid attention, they might have noticed he was holding a $3 million Stradivarius. That was the violin. World-class musician. And as they documented, they filmed him that day. Of the uh, over 1,000 people that went past, only 27 stopped to even listen at all. And uh, Josh, who usually sells $100 a ticket, put a hat out and he made $32 that day of donations. And when they interviewed people later, they they said, didn't you recognize? And everyone had the same response. They said, you don't expect to see something of that excellence in this location. You just don't expect it here. And I think the same thing is, is true of Christmas. We know the story so well, but when you step back for a moment, the last place you expect to see God is actually on this planet, much less in a manger, in a feeding trough, with animals around, in a small town of Bethlehem. This little baby here to realize, wait, this is God? And sometimes I think even those of us who know the story and know him, when we come to celebrate Christmas, we we celebrate the baby in the manger, but sometimes it's good to step back and go, wait a second, who is this excellent person? Who is this baby that's there? That's why I love this passage from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, real well-known passage, Isaiah tells us who is coming. Look, he writes in and he says, for To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He gives us this series of names together. Each name has two titles with it that complement each other. He doesn't stop there, though. He, He describes the level of his authority, of the increase of his government And of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. The authority that he will have, the reign he will bring, it's never going to end. The the throne, and remember, he's writing during a time period when the the people in Jerusalem, the people of Judah are struggling because they have an ungodly king. Ahaz isn't turning to God. Ahaz isn't bringing justice. Ahaz isn't living out any of these things. And Isaiah says, oh, there's a king coming though. And he's going to bring a kingdom that's unlike any other kingdom. It will literally never end from this time forth 
and forevermore. And I love this last line, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The power of God's going to make this happen. The zeal of God. God's actually excited about this. This is what God is about. And and in these two verses, I, I think it's good for us. For these people, they were looking forward with hope. For us, we're looking back 2,000 years ago. When we see that baby in the manger, I think we have to be reminded again of the greatness that is actually represented there. This passage tells us a lot about Jesus. It tells us about his nature. It tells us about his identity. And ultimately, it tells us about his destiny. Let's look at those three things together. First thing, his nature. His nature. Two things about Jesus that it shows in his nature. One, he's fully human. For unto us a child is born. He was born like any other child. He was carried in the womb. He was born that night to Mary. And and all that went with a birth, Mary experienced. And there were no epidurals at that point, by the way, either. This little couple that's there. Jesus came into the world and he experienced what it means to be fully human in every way. And his birth shows it. There's no shortcuts in it. He knows what it means to be hungry. He knows what it means to be poor. He knows what it means to be rejected. He knows what it means to hurt. He knows what it means to be tempted. And so when we look at our Savior, there's never a point you can look at him and go, yeah, but God, you don't know what it's like to experience X. Because he experienced everything. With that, though, he is also fully divine. A a child is born and a son. Notice the phrasing is different here, though. Children are born to us, but a son was given to us. His sonship, who he is, his identity, that was established from eternity past, and that was given to us as humanity. And so when you see Jesus and you see him walking around, he is this combination of fully human and fully divine. Our our minds don't fully understand this. Especially how could the God of the universe who's all-powerful, experiences, knows all, and yet he chooses not to exercise all those rights. Philippians 2 tells us that even though he existed in the form of God, even though he had all the rights of God, he did not consider equality with God something he had to grasp, he had to hold on to. But he emptied himself in order that he could take on humanity and experience it in every way. Fully God, fully human. Never gave up those rights. Never in a way that he lost them. He just didn't exercise them. Uh, I heard someone explain it this way. Let's say you were pulling into a company, huge corporation, big building there. As you pull into the parking lot, you you don't know where to park. You see all this designated parking. You're kind of lost in it. And suddenly the CEO of the company pulls up and sees you and says, hey, I'll show you. Follow me. And you follow his car, and he takes you all the way to the back. The only open parking is the very back, and he parks his car, and you park right next to him. He says, come on, we'll walk in together. And as you walk into the building, you look out front, and there, right in front of the building, was a parking spot designated for the CEO. It's always his. He could have taken full advantage of it. But he chose to give up what was his, so that he could help you and be there for you. See, Jesus was fully God in every way. But the rights that were his, as he stepped off his throne, as he stepped out of eternity, as he stepped out of the glory of it all, 
And he arrived as a baby in a manger so that he could help you and me. I love how Galatians puts it. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. Look, he sent forth his son. He was already his son. He was sent fully God, but he was born of a woman, and he came in the fullness of time. He came at the perfect time in human history. And you look at it, it's interesting to me. You know, the, the Population Bureau Index has estimated that on our planet, There's been over 105 billion people that have lived on this planet throughout history. If you look back and trace it, though, 98% of the population was born after the time of Jesus' arrival. Isn't that interesting? Even though there were thousands of years, there was this literal population explosion that happened from that time forth. And and you look at how God orchestrated, you look at how all of human history comes together, that it came during a time when the Roman Empire established a peace on the planet like the planet had never experienced on that global scale. You look at a time period when people shared a common language of Koine Greek that communication could happen across countries like never before. There was a road system, there was a security system, there was things in place that suddenly a message that came that needed to be spread so that the most amount of people could experience from that time forth that came right just in the fullness of time. Right before the fact, there's a population of explosion where the most amount of people would live. See, when you see that baby in the manger, when you celebrate him again, when you look at him, recognize he represents not just what happened 2,000 years ago, but what's been planned from eternity past, that God in the fullness of time sent his son who was fully God, fully man in every way. Look at his identity, though. If that's his nature, what's his identity? What is it? And these four titles tell us about Jesus. Look at the first one. He's wonderful counselor. Uh, The two words together, actually, it's a wonder-working counselor. It's a counselor like you've never experienced before. It's a counselor who always has the right answers in such a way, it's almost like he knows what's coming before it comes. That's how it's describing it. And the word counselor, we think of counselors like therapists today. This is talking about a counselor who's a counselor to a king, a counselor who's helping you make a decision, a counselor who, who can look at it and you'd bring him into your counsel. And so the kings of that day, one of the most valuable part of the court was the counselor. They were considered the person of wisdom. And so this first description of Jesus, it's interesting, these four titles, these wouldn't be necessarily the ones I would have chosen first to describe him. And so it's interesting, this is how God's introducing him to us. And one of the first things he says out of the gate is, man, you've got to recognize with Jesus, he's a wonderful counselor. He's so wise in every way. He he brings everything to bear in his counsel with him. And and as I look at our culture today, and I look at what we experience, in some ways, maybe that wouldn't be the first title I would use with Jesus, but boy, I need it in my life. I mean, is there anything that we need more that someone who would say, you can trust me, you can listen to me, I'll always tell you the right way. I'll always lead you in the truth. You you never have to wonder that his counsel is shaded by self-protection. 
It's shaded a little bit because he's always looking out for himself more than you. You you never have to wonder that his counsel is short-sighted because he literally can see from eternity past to eternity future. You, You never have to wonder at all the truth that he's leading you in. You know, I, I look at our culture today, and I was reading the words of a therapist who works with millennials. She said, I didn't plan on it. I just suddenly looked up my practice is pretty much 20-year-olds through 30-year-olds named Tess Bingham. And, and she said, almost every issue that we deal with, a lot of them are anxiety-related, and the anxiety that's spiking in our culture. And she said, almost all of them go back to the root of especially within the millennial generation, the, the struggle with knowing they're making the right decision. They just really struggle with choices. And part of it is they have so many choices. There's new choices today about career and about life in a new way. And so then it kind of locks you down. Is this the right choice? They struggle about relational choices because they've seen so much brokenness in the previous generation. They've seen so much divorce and they go, I, I don't want to do that. But then they get scared of making the wrong choice about the wrong person. She said, almost the bulk of my counsel is helping people deal with not only the choices, but the ramification of choices and knowing, am I doing the right thing in life? Did I choose the right way? And then I step back and I go, the Savior came in the world. One of the first terms he introduced himself as is, I am a wonderful counselor. It's interesting to me, he introduces himself that way. The Holy Spirit is described as the counselor. One of the reasons he said, I leave my spirit with you, to lead you, to counsel, to help make wise choices in life, to recognize that, that he is wisdom personified. All wisdom really comes from God. Look how James puts it. I love this passage because I go, this is what I want in my life. The wisdom from above, the wisdom that comes from God, look at it. It's pure. It's not shaded at all. It's just pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. God's a reasonable God. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. Doesn't play favorites. It's absolutely sincere. Every time I read through this list, I go, yes, that's what I need. I need that kind of wisdom. I need that kind of leadership. I I need a God who would love me enough that he wants to lead my life. And, And And he wants us to recognize that about him. So when he said, hey, even when he comes in the world, you know one of the first ways you know him? Ah, he's a wonderful counselor. Embrace that. Now, I can say that and you go, oh, man, I love to have a wonderful counselor. Here's the only problem with a a counselor. They tell you what to do. They don't always help you do it. (laughs) You ever had that or you hired a consultant? Consultant can come in and go, yeah, your company's screwed up. Yeah, you need to do this, this, and this. And then they leave. They get on planes. They go somewhere. And you're the one left going, okay, that even if it was the right counsel, somebody still has to do this. Here's what I, I like. 
is, is God came in the world in wonderful counsel. And the biggest problems in our life are, are sin problems. It's an us problem. And as Jesus looks at us and he goes, oh yeah, you got a problem with sin. <laughs> you got a problem with death. You got a problem with the evil one. You, you got problems. He doesn't stop there and go, hey, glad to counsel you. I'm gone. Look at the second title. He's mighty warrior. This term in Hebrew, El Gabor. He's the one who fights for you. So he's the one that tells you the battle plan. Yeah, that's where you need to go. And then he goes, oh, and by the way, I'll go fight it for you too. Because I'm actually the one that can do something about it. I'm actually the one that has the power to be your champion, to be your warrior, to face your enemies. It's the same terms that he used in Psalm. Look at it. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Never forget that when Jesus came into this world, it's part of a cosmic battle. He said, the gates of hell are not going to stand against my church. He knew full well that he was coming. In fact, if you read through Revelation, when it describes his birth, it describes his coming. It describes Satan as this dragon who wanted to kill him right out of the gate. Jesus knew he was coming right into the heat of the battle. In fact, it had been promised all the way back in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, when humanity fell into sin, when we screwed it up, when we did the one thing we weren't supposed to do, instead of just condemning us, as God looked at Eve, he goes, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send someone to you. There's a child that's coming. And he compared that child to Satan. And he said, this serpent, this Satan, he will strike his heel. It's a battle. He's going to strike him. But this child coming, he will crush his head. He will crush the power of darkness. He will crush the forces of sin. He will literally overcome sin and sickness and death and all the enemies that we've ever faced. He steps into the arena and he will win. And when you look at that little baby in the manger, don't ever forget he's a mighty warrior. He's a mighty warrior with power that sometimes I think we underestimate. You know, we live in the Western world. We don't really talk a lot about spiritual forces, spiritual power. It's interesting. If you, you look in other contexts, people that see a lot of spiritism and they deal with it on a front line, these issues, these names are very relevant to us. Uh, it, it was, I was reading a story of a young man named Nard who, who lived on a Philippine island of Luzon. And his village, Dibagat, was a very spiritual village. They had witch doctors, they had headhunters, they had forces that would fight these spiritual forces. And he, back in 1956, uh, an American missionary named Dick Rowe showed up. And as Dick came in, he goes, hey, I want to learn your language and be able to tell you the greatest story that's ever been told. He was there to translate the New Testament. And, and all of the elders in the village, they got with him and they said, before you're allowed in, we need to know how powerful your God is. Can your God overcome the spirits? Can your God overcome the forces? And he said, my God is absolutely the most powerful God. And so they let him live among them. For the next seven years, he translated the book of Mark. He was headed back to the United States to go visit for a furlough for a period of time. And before he left, he grabbed this young man, Nard, who was 13 at the time. And he said, Nard, I want you to read the book of Mark in your language while I'm gone. And as Nard sat down and, and read through the story of Jesus, 
He said, I was absolutely amazed at the power of what he was able to do. Until he came to the end of the book. And suddenly he, he's reading. And, and he sees Jesus drug out of the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and he sees Jesus beaten. And he sees Jesus on a cross crucified. And, and as he describes the scene, he found himself so angry with God, he threw the gospel down. He goes, I, I don't want to follow a God like that. Listen to his words. He said, deep in my heart, a hatred of God swelled. I shook my fist and I shouted, I hate you, God, for being so powerless. Why should I believe in a powerless God like you? With all my strength, I threw the gospel of Mark down to the rocks. I started walking home. I couldn't understand why God wouldn't protect his own son. Our headhunters defended us to the death. Because of them, no one would touch us. I wanted a God like that, someone who would protect me from the spirits that demanded we sacrifice our cows and our chickens and our pigs and our dogs. This God didn't even save his own son. But as he was walking, he stopped in his tracks as God spoke to him and said, Nard, that's how much I love you. I love you so much, I was willing to sacrifice my son. And as the reality of grace washed over him, the reality of how powerful this message of sacrifice sunk in. He found himself sitting there crying and going, God, if you love me that much, I'll trust you. He said, here's where the story got fun. He went back and picked up the rest of Mark. And, and, and then suddenly he read how Jesus was placed in a tomb. And then how he rose from the grave. And, and he went from being mad at God to amazed at him. Because here's what he said. No one in Dibagat had ever risen from the dead. No one had ever shown that kind of power. No one had ever overcome death itself. And, and he said, as the reality of a God who would sacrifice that much and overcome that much came together in his heart and his life, he said, there is no one like Jesus. Guys, don't ever forget that. Yeah, that truth is... It's true today. And so when you come and you celebrate the baby in the manger, when you come and you celebrate the Christmas story, when you look at him, you go, man, he is a wonderful counselor. He's the leader I need in my life, but he's also the mighty warrior. He's the mighty warrior. And then this third name, and again, these are kind of strange names I wouldn't have chosen if I'm picking, but look at the third one. He calls him everlasting father. Everlasting father. You go, well, how is he the everlasting father? And it's not saying that Jesus and the Father are the same person. Uh, there's a, a, a heresy that the church has always fought. Some people think God is just one God and he kind of changes outfits. So sometimes he shows up as Father, sometimes he shows up as Jesus, sometimes he shows up as Holy Spirit. That's called modalism. It's not true, by the way. We believe in a God who's three persons. He's one God, three persons. It's a trinity. We don't know exactly how that works. And as he's describing it here, remember, he's not describing that he's took the place of father, but he's showing us father. This is a title. And so part of the title is he's as everlasting as father was. Jesus, did, there was no time that God the father existed that God the son didn't. In the same way, he shows us, and part of the, the term here in the Hebrew, the heart of father, 
the compassionate Father, who loves us like a Father, who actually reveals the Father to us. In fact, Philip said that. Philip said, man, we want to see God the Father. And look what Jesus said to Philip and John. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Part of the reason he came as God and man, part of the reason he walked around on this planet is so that we could understand the character of our Father himself. So we could understand how much God the Father loves us as well. And, and some of us that have grown up, maybe you're like me, and over the years working with men a lot and teaching and men's fraternity and better man and that, I've had the opportunity, especially with men, but I've seen it in women as well. Probably one of the most universal wounds is a wound that people have with their fathers. A lot of people have been hurt by dad. Or dad wasn't there. Or like me, my dad died when I was six years old. It was years without a dad. And a harder relationship with my stepfather before they divorced. Maybe you're here and, and over the years there's a cognitive part of me that knows God is father and I worship him in that. But that heart part of how, how to relate to him in that way. How to love him as father. It's interesting how much you'll see this theme show up in movies, in music. Um, if you start watching for it, the brokenness between child and father, and, and it's a, a universal theme with it. In fact, a few years ago, I, I saw an interview of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I love the boss. I mean, he's just that raw music. And, and Springsteen, somebody noticed that all, so many of his songs deal with his struggle with his dad. His struggle with his identity in that. And, and he, he said, yeah, it was a very broken relationship. A lot of my songs were around that. He said, my parents' struggles, it's the subject of my life. It's the thing that eats at me and always will. Those wounds stay with you and you turn them into language and a purpose. Springsteen said, man, I love how T-Bone Burnett, who's another musician, he described rock and roll. He said, rock and roll is all about daddy. And listen to Burnett's line. He said, rock and roll is one embarrassing scream of daddy. And then as Springsteen gestured to his band on stage, he said, I guess we're just repair, repairmen. Repairmen with the toolbox. If I repair a little of myself, I'll repair a little of you too. That's my job. I like music. I think it helps. I think the stories and the movies and the different ways you see it, sometimes they speak to us in a way. But nothing really repairs that. Especially not at an eternal level. It's a broken relationship. I love that we have a Savior who loved us so much he knows how universal that need is. So he said, let, let me show you, everlasting Father. Let me show you what he's like. Let me share with you my sonship. Let, let me make a way for you to be adopted in my family. Let, let me open it up so much that when you pray to him, when you talk to him, here's what you ought to call him. You ought to call him Abba. That's what I call him, Daddy. And you could call him that too. And, and let me make it everlasting that you'll be in this family forever.
See, God knows how much we need this. And he knew that we could never do it. And so he sent him son. He opened the way. And this baby that shows up, when you see him there in the manger, you need to recognize, oh, this isn't just a baby. He's the most incredible leader and counselor that anyone will ever have in their life. He's the most incredible mighty warrior that will face any power of darkness. He's an everlasting father. He opens the way for me to be a part of this family. The final line of it is, he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. And I love all these things, they complement each other. Because if you had one or the other, it's not quite complete. I mean, it'd be one thing to say he's going to show up and he's the prince, which is true. You go, man, the prince is coming, the ruler's coming. But you might be left going, what's his rule going to be like? Is he a good prince or a bad prince? He goes, oh, no, he's the prince of peace. But in the same way, you go, well, he's the person of peace that's coming. And you go, well, it's great to have a peaceful person, but does he have any authority to do anything about it? But then you put the combination together and you go, well, he's the prince of peace. He's this ruler that, that his very reign itself is going to be defined by peace and bring peace in a way that we absolutely need. That's why the angels declared that night, look, look what they said to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, and on earth there's finally peace. You finally have the peace that you've been longing for. Because up to that time, Romans 5 tells us, we were actually enemies with God. There's no peace with God. He's not an everlasting father to us. We don't get to experience that. We're not led by his counsel. We have no warrior fighting for us. Why? Because the one we desperately need, we're at odds with. We're enemies with. And yet when Jesus came, you know what happened? Oh, there's peace on earth. You can have peace with God now. You can actually have peace with each other now. He brings peace into a home. He brings peace into a life. He wants to heal relationships. He brings peace and he's got the authority to do something about it. He brings peace into our circumstances, even when we don't even understand what's going on. And hear me, peace does not mean there's absence of conflict. There's absence of trouble. Jesus never promised that. In fact, it's interesting. Look how he puts it in John. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He says you're going to still have trouble, but that can't rob you of your peace. Scripture describes it as a peace that passes understanding. The peace that comes through a relationship with Christ, the peace that comes because the Holy Spirit's with us, the peace that we have. And hear me, because some of you, you are in the middle of the tribulation right now. You're in the middle of those struggles. You're in the middle of heartache. I've heard stories even this last week that, that you are going through things that my heart goes out to you. But even in that, you promised peace in him. I love how Corey Tim Boom puts it. She, she said, when I look at Jesus, the dove of peace descends on my heart. But then when I start staring at the dove of peace, it flies away again. And here's what she's saying in that. The key on all of this, if I want to have peace even in this time right now, is I don't focus on the circumstance. I don't even focus on the peace itself. I focus on Jesus. 
And, and as I focus on Jesus, the peace descends. And be careful in that moment because when that peace descends, we're tempted to look at the peace and hold on to the peace. And is it going to stay? And it will fly away quickly. Keep focusing on Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty warrior. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. And even as I read through that list, I've been studying through it and reading through those names and saying them aloud. And as I go through each one of them, you know what I find in my heart? For each one of them, I go, oh, God, I need that. Oh, God, thank you that you are that. Oh, God, thank you that you knew me better than I know me. And you showed up in all the ways that I need. This passage, I love how it talks about his nature. I love how it introduces identity. There's one final part, though, that we don't ever want to miss. It also speaks of his destiny. It also speaks of the fact that even though he came to a manger, even though he died on a cross, even though he went to a grave, none of those were his destiny. His destiny was to go back to the throne that he had left to come here. And, and, and on that throne, we recognize his rule. Look how the passage, it describes his reign as powerful and universal. It says his kingdom will have no end. It says that, that the government rests on his shoulders. All true authority, all true power is really Jesus. And then when he came, he was launching a kingdom. He's launching his rule. And, and, and here's the thing about it. A lot of people missed the opportunity to worship him in the manger. Most of them turned away from him at the cross. Many people in the world won't even recognize his re resurrection. But here's one thing that universally no one will miss. One day we will all stand before his throne. And none of us will miss it then. Romans 14 puts it this way. It says, for as is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue confess to God, so that each of us will give account to himself. Every single one of us, one day, whether you recognized him as the baby in the manger, whether you submitted your life to him at the cross, whether you recognized that he rose from the grave, every single one of us, it will be unequivocally clear, absolutely, when you stand before him, oh, he really is who he says he was. He really is king. He really is in charge. And the opportunity of Christmas is I submit my life to him now. So that that day when I stand before him on his throne and he's on his throne, it will be one of the happiest days of my life because I get to see my Savior in all of his glory. And we will cry out and go, man, it's awesome that you are the king. Or it will be one of the most horrible days. When you recognize that all that he said was true. And all that he promised was true. And I didn't submit my life to it. And instead of an eternity of enjoying his rule, it's an eternity away. What a moment that none of us has to miss because he came, because he shared, because he will rule. But it calls us to submit now. It calls us to embrace now. It calls us to receive the gift now. And recognize when he rules and we're in eternity. Here's the one final point that I don't want you to lose as well. 
His reign is powerful and universal, but his reign's also going to be consistent and eternal. As it describes that passage, he's going to rule in righteousness. He's going to rule in truth. He's going to rule in justice. Here's what it means. He's going to rule according to his character. And so there's never a point that you have to wake up one day and the rule changed. There's never a point in eternity you're going to wake up one day and he's changed his mind how he's going to do things. He's going to do everything. Look how Hebrews puts it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the the God of eternity past, the God that walked this planet, the God of eternity future will always be the same. Here's what that means for us. When, When we're in eternity one day, there will never be a point that news comes out of this nefarious thing that our ruler did. There'll be no impeachment or hearings. Praise God, that alone will be wonderful. Because there'll be no need to impeach. There'll be no division. There'll be no rabble-rousing. No one will get up and go, oh, we could have a better ruler. We'll all recognize, oh, he's the best of rulers. He's the kindest of rulers. Human flourishing. We've yet to flourish as humans in the way that we could because we've never been led like that. Can you imagine what eternity is going to be like, what we'll be able to do and accomplish when you have leadership like that? Now, now hear this as well, though. You'll never wake up one day in eternity and he's changed his opinion about you. He's decided he doesn't love you or you don't belong or he's rejecting you. To know that you're loved Every single day. Guys, when you see the baby in the manger, don't just look and celebrate a little story from 2,000 years ago. Recognize you're looking at wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, the warrior who's overcome for us. And the gift that he is to every single one of us that none of us deserve. I think this is one of the reasons we love Christmas so much. It's a gift. We love giving gifts because I think it's a reflection of what God's given us. I'll close with the story that Jennifer Barney talks about when she was 11 years old. It was Christmas time. She was super excited. And as she looked under the tree, there weren't as many presents as usual. Their family was going through a hard time. Usually their parents love to lavish the kids. There's presents everywhere. And her mom kept saying leading up to Christmas, guys, there's not going to be as many presents this year. I hope you're not disappointed. She was kind of preparing them. Jennifer found herself every day studying every present. She knew the shake. She knew the feel, the weight of it, the names, the wrapping paper. And Christmas morning, as they went out there, they started ripping everything open. They got to the presents pretty quickly. And then her mother walked over with this one present and she said, oh, Jennifer, there's one more for you. And she looked at it and was confused. Because she said, mom, I recognize that present. Remember, she had memorized all of them. And she knew that it was a present that had been for her mother. But there was a new label on it that her mom had put over the old one. And she'd written Jennifer's name. She said, no, no. This one's for you. 
She opened it up, and it was a blow dryer, which she said for an 11-year-old girl was a great present. But it was really more than the gift. Because she looked at her mother, and she said, I realized then how much she really loves me. That she would take a gift that wasn't mine. She'd put my name on it. Because she loved me so much. Guys, we serve a God who loved us so much, he gave the gift of his son. He's the greatest gift, the greatest savior. I love how John 3.16, it says, whosoever believes in him. You know what that means? Our name's on that gift. Your name's on that gift. That gift's for you too. And he's the Savior who came. And not only had the plan, he had the power to overcome it. He had the relationship that he invites us in. He's a king who establishes peace for all eternity. But we have to receive it. Don't just celebrate a baby in a manger. Celebrate the gift that was given to you and me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for what he accomplished. We thank you for just Christmas. And Father, I pray today, I pray for anybody here. Maybe they've uh, celebrated this story, but they've never accepted the gift. Maybe they've never recognized who Jesus really is for them. I pray even now that you would give them the humility to receive. To receive him as Savior. You say, whosoever believes in him shall not perish for all eternity. They will be ruled and reigned by the Prince of Peace. But it takes submitting our hearts and lives now. Lord, I pray for those of us who do know him and have known him and have celebrated him. I pray, would you stir in us a new way, a fresh way, what Christmas is all about, who Jesus really is, the power in his name, the power in this gift, the power in his life. Lord, we celebrate it now and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.